where to go from China. Is friendshoring an option for sourcing production? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, editor in chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. The rush is on among global manufacturers to find alternatives to making product in China. Rising wages, geopolitical tensions, and the risk of putting all your plants in one place are among the factors behind the drive for supply diversification. But what options present themselves? Can companies hit that sweet spot of low cost, high quality, reasonable proximity to markets, and social responsibility? On this episode, we weigh all those factors with the help of Michael Farlikas, Chief Executive Officer of E2Open. We'll talk about whether so-called friendshoring is a real alternative, whether the need for profitability might drive production to so-called pariah countries, and whether global manufacturers have the visibility into their supply chains that's necessary to making these determinations in the first place. Finally, are supply chains in better shape today to handle the next big crisis? Here's my conversation with Michael Farlikas. Michael Farlikas, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Great to be here. Thank you for being with me. So, you know, with all this talk, Michael, about the need for reshoring and less of a dependence on China as a manufacturing source, what has popped up sometimes is this concept of friendshoring. Not entirely sure what that means, but I think you kind of look down with disdain upon the very term. Consider it to be, quote unquote, fake news. Explain yourself, please. What do you mean by that? I'm not so sure it's fake news. I do know that our customers, who are the largest companies in the, in the world, are, are definitely looking at de-indexing against one part of the world, mostly with an eye towards being much more diverse and resilient in their supply chains. And for the past, I'll call it 20, 25 years, they've been building a very lean supply chain, but I would say very static, meaning it's mostly production in, in a lot of cases, China, not always in China, but in one part of the world, usually geographically specific. And then I'm going to sell to several places in the world, but my main productive capacity is generally isolated into one or two regions. And I think with the tariffs that came out and then the pandemic and then the awful conflict and war in Ukraine, companies are now saying these disruptions that happen seem to be happening at a greater frequency. I can't necessarily predict when they're going to come, but I can probably predict there's going to be some. So in order for us to make sure we have supply consistency, we need to be more diverse and need to be thinking about where we can operate from and be able to operate in all circumstances. So our customers are clearly saying, I need to be more agile. I need to be more resilient. And I need to be more diverse in terms of my, my production and my distribution. And they will look to places that are more or less friendly. But I think the bigger driver is that they just want to be more diverse and have more options and be able to change from time to time as the requirements indicate. But I think that's kind of more my point, which is that's the driver, I'm not necessarily trying to pick a region that might be friendly or not, because they, remember, they build these supply chains and they build these nodes for a very long period of time, five, 10 years. Yeah. And it's more about resiliency than anything else. 
certainly the change is going to take time. So the question of diversification, I mean, that's you don't can't argue with that. It is necessary to de-risk supply chains to create more resilience. But then the question is, well, if not China or if less China, and of course we aren't necessarily talking about abandoning China altogether, but if less China, then where? This idea of friend sourcing, I'm not even sure what we mean when we say friend. I guess that's kind of right. a, a, on a diplomatic level, is that right? Like a so-called ally diplomatically, is that what they mean? Yeah, I think that's kind of what the name implies. I'm not so sure that's the number one order of operations for most companies. That's going to be mm-hmm. one of many attributes that they'll consider. The more important attributes are, do they have the infrastructure that I need to make my product reliably or my componentry or my supply reliably? Do they have the right labor costs overall? That's an input cost. They always evaluate that. Do they have the right labor laws? Can we be confident that they're going to meet our requirement as a company to have sustainable labor and sustainable ecology aspects for the long term. Those are the attributes that will all be considered. And sure, if they're friendly today is one of them. But I, I would say there's it's a much larger picture and a bigger pie of attributes that they're going to be looking at in terms of where they should place you know, their productive capacity, be that supplying or manufacturing of their products. Well, before we get to those other alternatives, I could say that I guess the simplest and probably most simplistic answer to the country that answers yes to all those questions is the United States. Why not bring it all home? Why not reshore here? To what degree do you believe that is a realistic option for manufacturers today? I think it is a realistic option. I think you have to kind of understand what the word manufacturing means today. So manufacturing is much different than it was 20 years ago or, geez, 50, 75 years ago, where the manufacturing process has been broken up into small incremental pieces. And the manufacturing process now spans great time distances and as well geographic distances. I always give this analogy. I I went to a a Ford factory when I worked 20 years ago and uh, it was River Rouge and then it, it was recommissioned to something else. But back in the day, Literally, they would bring iron ore in and they would make cars on the other side. Everything was in one place. Mm-hmm. Over the past 75 years, that process has been broken down into specialists that make one or two things in a specialized way. That drives tremendous return on invested capital because I can get more capacity out of that capital. But it adds distance and time and complexity. And through technology and through it basically specialization, Companies have figured out that I can get more done at a lower overall cost if I break that process down into individual componentry. So when you say manufacturing, to me, I look at it from that manufacturing line used to be in one place. Now that's spread across you know, all around the world. So, yes, there'll be more assembly in the United States, but some things are just going to fundamentally be always be manufactured or produced in terms of supply points around the world. So manufacturing now is a global sport in every sense of the word. And I doubt very seriously it'll be more confined to any one country. It'll always span countries. That's kind of where the use of capital comes in to be used most efficiently. Yeah. And when we're talking about raw materials, certainly that's a whole different ballgame. It's very unrealistic to expect that those could all be sourced locally. I mean, by definition, a lot of those do come from from overseas and offshore locations, right? That's right. And and then the componentry will be sometimes a function of those raw materials, right? So you could say, I'm going to, uh, I need a raw material. The raw material now needs to go into make one component. I might make the component next to the raw material because that's a better, better way of thinking about shipping a component versus shipping the raw material somewhere. So that's mm-hmm. where I'm talking about as countries develop infrastructure, 
their ability to specialize into making one part of manufactured product makes more economic sense from a capital allocation perspective and also an operating cost perspective. Some of the alternatives that have been proposed to China that aren't closer to home, Vietnam, India, are two very strong possibilities for changing production. But it's been suggested that the other side of the coin of the friendly country is the so-called pariah country, which is actually quite the opposite of being a friend and yet might still be considered a very desirable place to produce for any number of reasons, whether cost or expertise or location. Are we fated to have to rely on some countries that fall under that category as well? I think the war in Ukraine was a big inflection point in my mind where you saw Western, mostly Western, but you know, really everywhere around the world, kind of decide in unison that there are some actions that a country might take that are, are so outside the norm that I, I just can't continue doing business with that country and that, you know, when I say country, I really mean the, the political authority rather than the people of the country. But mm-hmm. I can't even envision doing business with that political authority governing the country because what they've done is so egregious to human rights or so egregious to norms of society. And you saw that happen in real time where you have really big corporations just literally walk away from capital investments in Russia like in, overnight and just say, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave what I have there. I'm pulling out. I don't really care if it costs me some money in the short term. I don't really care if I'm going to lose the capital I invested. It's just so out of bounds that I'm just not I'm just going to not participate. And I think that to me is a, a watershed event. I've never really seen that happen all at once in unison. And you saw that with industry after industry, you know, Starbucks, McDonald's, and others. Just literally saying, I'm going to walk away from my investment because what they've done has proven to us that I, I can't rely on them to be a good actor. So mm-hmm. I, I do think there's a threshold issue where people are obviously tolerant of other a country's ability to self-govern, and they're going to have their own ideas on what that means. But there's, there are limits. And I think with what Russia has you know, done in Ukraine, reached those limits, and I think that it showed up in how big corporations now are being responsive to their customers and their employees and saying, I, I just can't envision buying products from companies that do business with Haraya country, or I can't envision working for a company that does business with a prior company. But you're balancing so many factors. On one hand, you're balancing the questions of what is economic to do, what the distance is, what the efficiency is, what the reliability of the source is. And then on the other hand, you do have these social issues, human rights issues, ESG issues. So where is the litmus test? I mean, you kind of have to consider all these things at once. Are there times when you're going to have to maybe go a little bit more toward the economic side because that's the only way you can do things profitably? Or are we so much now aware of the human rights issue and the idea of brand reputation, that that has to be the big consideration before sourcing decisions are made. I really believe so. When there was a great politician who said, politics ain't beanbag, and I, I guess I'd say supply chain ain't beanbag either. Like, these are all very <laughs> complex issues that have to be all balanced against each other. So you have to you know, always think about my gross margin as a manufacturer. So all of these issues show up in the gross margin line of products. So you have to always be concerned about what is my gross margin because it speaks to affordability at the end of the day and it speaks to profitability. So you have to always be mindful of your gross margin. And then you have to have the trade-offs of where I can do business from a resiliency perspective and consistency perspective. And then where is my ethos in terms of where I can do business given the company you want to run. Mm -hmm. All those things have to be put into your judgment on how to make these you know, pretty uh, substantial investments. I think to me, 
The biggest issue is companies are going to have to be way more agile in making trade-offs so they can be more flexible without impacting the supply to meet the demand they see. And uh, what that means for the whole world is that the only thing that can help do that is really more and more technology as things become more and more complex. Because as you add nodes and as you add different parts of the world where you're making things, your supply chain becomes incrementally more complex. And then that's where what, what can help keep costs down, even though you would love increasing costs, is, is more and more technology to eliminate those things that you can control, eliminate waste, eliminate friction. So that way you can kind of have the best of both worlds, which is a very resilient supply chain without impacting your, your gross margins too much. Well, what does it mean exactly, Michael, to be agile? How fast must you be able to react to an unexpected occurrence? To be able to shift from one source to another on a dime in a matter of days, weeks, years? I mean, what does agility actually mean in a realistic way? I would say weeks to months between understanding a disruption in its totality understanding the length of the disruption, and then being able to make a change. So I, I think the best-in-class companies will be able to anticipate those disruptions earlier and then be able to understand their forward demand for their supply earlier and then be able to say, okay, I foresee this happening, and now I need over the next four weeks to change from mostly manufactured in this area to mostly manufactured in that area. And if you have built in your supply relationships and have you built in the connectivity electronically across your multiple tiers of manufacturing, you can actually do that pretty rapidly. But it takes pre-planning and it takes pre-connecting of all these different places so that when the disruption happens, you have the ability to actually switch from supply point A to supply point B. So I, my answer is mm -hmm. weeks to months is, is kind of the would be I say best in class right now. It has been said many times that the name of the game, the one thing you need before you can do anything else is visibility. And that yeah. means visibility across multiple tiers of a supply chain. How Correct. good a job are companies doing generally today, if, if indeed you can make a generalized statement about it, at achieving that necessary visibility that would make all this else possible? Not very good. You saw that through the pandemic. The reason is that the fundamental architecture of supply chain technology is not very well connected in a real-time sense. Meaning, if I'm a manufacturer, I now rely on different companies to manufacture my componentry or manufacture my product. I rely on different companies to ship my product. And that could be all sorts of modes, rail, parcel, ocean, truck. Companies store my product for me, and then companies sell my product for me. So what companies need most is, is as timely and real-time data from those companies as possible. But what that really means from a systems perspective is I need real-time data from the systems of my partner company. And today, most of the connectivity is individual, not network. Most of the connectivity is batch, where it comes in batches over 6 to 12 to 24-hour timeframes. And most of the companies deal with the problem of once I get data, I have to harmonize it and synchronize it and make it usable within my ecosystem. And that might take me a day or two or three. So that's really, to me, where the opportunity lies in greater networking of the supply chain through interconnected systems overall. So I think that's where, to me, the world is going. And today, the, the economy and the infrastructure is not very well networked. But that is what I think will give a lot of efficiency to the system overall. So you're saying more needs to be done in networking, more needs to be done in achieving the necessary visibility. In your opinion, though, the way we sit right now, 
are we in a better position in the larger supply chain sense to handle the next big equivalent of a COVID-19 pandemic better than we were in 20, in 2019? Or is it the, basically the same situation? We're going to feel the same pain because we haven't made enough progress since that time. I think the connectivity level is improving, but you also have to kind of look back and, and see the historic proportions of what happened during the pandemic from a supply chain perspective. And it's easy to say nobody was prepared, but it, if you look back at what happened to why supply chains got so confuzzled in the first place, it was everybody in the entire world changed their consuming behavior dramatically in a matter of basically three or four months, where the entire world said, we're not going to go out and do things interactively. We're going to stay at home. We're not going to go to dinner. We're not going to travel. We're not going to go to ball games. We're going to stay at home. Simultaneously, the governments made sure people had enough dollars and money to sustain themselves. So consumer behavior changed from, I'm going to spend a portion of my money out and about in social activities and a portion on making my home better, to all of a sudden, everybody makes their home better. Everybody's thinking about like the hard goods they needed. And in my lifetime, in our lifetime, I don't think it's ever happened before. The whole world just said, I'm not going to go to dinner out and I'm going to just do everything at home and therefore I'm going to make my home better and switch my consuming behavior to much more hard goods. That mm-hmm. happened overnight. And I don't think any supply chain would be resilient enough to change to think, to think about that. And then last March, the opposite happened where everybody kind of agreed that okay, we're going to have to go out there and we're going to start living normal life or life that is much more active interpersonal. So behavior changed again dramatically, which is everybody stopped buying things for their homes and started traveling, going to different places and seeing their families. And that changed behavior the other way. And that whipsaw back and forth to me has never happened that I can recall ever on a global scale. And I think that's what really affected the supply chain most. So Yes, on the visibility side, way better. People are thinking about this problem and building in better infrastructure for sure. But that disruption, that automatic change globally all at once is really something that is a unique experience. It'll get better next time, but like there's nothing that can prepare a supply chain full of millions of people to ship student body left immediately and then student body right without thinking there's going to be a disruption. So maybe more suffering in the future, but maybe alleviated somewhat by these points that you're making about some of the changes already underway or yet to be made. Michael Farlikas of E2Open, thank you so much for your insights and your nuance into these uh, discussions about technology and sourcing and diversification and supply chain crises. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It was great talking to you. That was my conversation with Michael Farlikas of E2Open, talking about the big decision on where to source product in times of crisis and uncertainty. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.